Welcome to The Curious Task, where we talk about politics, philosophy, and economics from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Matt Buffton, and today my guest is Seth Kaplan. We'll be talking about the role of neighborhoods and the role they play in our society. Professor Kaplan lectures on international studies at Johns Hopkins University. He's a fellow with the Mercatus Center's program on pluralism and civil exchange, and he's the author of Fragile Neighborhoods, Repairing American Society, One Zip Code at a Time. That's the book that's going to be informing our conversation today. And as usual, we're going to start with a question and then go wherever the answers lead us. So, Seth, tell me, why are neighborhoods important? They're important on many levels, Matt. First, just think of in the United States. I mean, you're you're coming from Canada. So, of course, Canada and the United States have differences. So I'm going to use the American context here. In the United States, the average lifespan can differ by as many as 40 years based upon where you live. A more typical scenario will be like I was speaking to someone from Kansas City a couple of weeks ago, and they were telling me there was two neighboring counties on the western side of, Canada, of, of Kansas City, and they had a difference of 20 years. One county, people lived to mid-60s. One, they lived to mid-80s. And so this is just like a, a proxy uh, or an indicator of well-being. Uh, social mobility differs based upon neighborhood. Health differs upon neighborhood. Safety differs based upon neighborhood. Um, so many indicators or so many things that that affect us every day based, is based upon where you live. And I just ask listeners, if you had to move, what is, the, what is one of the first things you do when you're trying to move? You look for the right neighborhood. And only then do you look for your particular house. So we instinctively know neighborhoods matter. Let me just take it to one additional layer. If we in our countries, in Canada and the United States, are each experiencing society so differently based upon where we live, this has great implications for politics, for economics, for everything. Uh, and I think what we see in the in the in the developed countries and the United States and the other Anglo-Saxon, the other English-speaking countries in particular, is that uh, between the state and the individual, there used to be lots and lots of institutions that were place-based. And what we see today in many many neighborhoods, they have uh, they have weakened, they have thinned out, they have disappeared. And I think when we ask ourselves, why is, our, why is mistrust rising? Why is polarization rising? I think we also can track that down to the fact that even in neighborhoods that are doing materially well, there's very little time people are spending with each other. And that is affecting how we view things, how, how we think of other people, how we think of politics, how we think of the trajectory of the country. And it has enormous implications for the whole country. That's great. And I like that you mentioned neighborhoods that are doing materially well may not be actually good neighborhoods in the way that you're talking about. So I think that many of our listeners, if you imagined a good neighborhood or a bad neighborhood, they might just use that as a sense of material wealth. You walk by lots of big houses, nice cars. That's a good neighborhood. Lots of boarded up houses, people lurking around, look like they're up to no good. That's a bad neighborhood. But that's not entirely, I think, the distinction that you're using. Can you tell us a little bit more about what your research has found about what makes good neighborhoods and what makes bad neighborhoods? So my research shows that uh, the strength of a neighborhood, again, social and material poverty and wealth are not the same things. We want to make it very clear about that. You can be uh, a poor place and have very, very strong family, interfamily, 
and social uh, uh, dynamics that support people, make people feel good, help people um, in times of need and help them advance and thrive. And then you can have well-off places that uh, people are isolated from each other. People don't feel they can talk to each other. People don't want to reveal vulnerability. And so you could be materially well-off and socially poor. And I think we see a lot of that in many places in North America. So my research shows that the strength of a neighborhood, the simplest way to think about it is the abundance of institutions. And by institutions, I mean everything from family, interfamily dynamics, to uh, nonprofits, to uh, places of worship, to, um, to could be uh, parent associations, could be small businesses. There's, these are all institutions. Some are formal, some are registered. A lot of them are informal. I'll just give the example of my neighborhood, for example. So I'm thinking of my daughter's best friend in this past year, underwent chemo. She's 11 years old, sixth grader, underwent chemo, uh, basically could have been a a tragic, uh, very heart-wrenching year for that child. Of course, the medical, there were medical challenges. There was trips to the hospital and everything, and there was all the all the procedures, but the neighborhood uh, rallied around the family, rallied around the child to the extent that I see the child, she lost her hair, and yet she's perfectly comfortable walking around without her wig on. She's out there doing bake sales. I mean, she's in my house. She's in other people's houses. The family is supported. So when you're in a neighborhood that's that has this social safety net in terms of relationships, you are experiencing life. That was one example of one child. But imagine each of us, how we experience life day in and day out. So I I think the single most important element of a successful neighborhood is the abundance of institutions. And and that's where I focus a lot of my work. Great, great. In the book, you talk a lot about the idea of social capital. Now, of course, like your physical capital, the way that economists might think about it is the thing that could define a rich neighborhood versus a poor neighborhood. Can you talk more about the concept of, of social capital and what we know about that? So capital is a shorthand for something of value. We have human capital, we have financial capital, and so on and so forth. Social capital, uh, it's not easy to measure, but it's a well-used term in many fields. And it basically means uh, the wealth or the, the value of your social network. And, um, and it basically has two elements. It has bonding and bridging. I mean, you could divide it more complicated, but let's just stick with those two dimensions. Bonding in this case would be the strengths of relationships in your neighborhood or in your community. When I talk about that 11-year-old child, the bonding ties in the neighborhood were there to support that family and child. Bridging social capital would be the relationships between, between people in the neighborhood and elsewhere, other neighborhoods, government. And it's more used for opportunity. So if that family, for example needed social support to get them through a hard time, they're most likely to look at their neighbors for help. But if they needed to find a good doctor, if they needed to find uh, some government assistance, if they needed to find um, some, some specialist or some individual that could help them that wasn't in the neighborhood, 
I mean, they could look at their own network, but if the neighborhood has strong bridging social capital, they will, through their friends or their neighbors, I mean, mostly we're talking about people you know, not necessarily people you hang out with and are friends, they will help that family get connected elsewhere. And that's bridging social capital. So I think the contrast is if you live in a neighborhood with very little social capital, weak bonding, weak bridging social capital, uh, they're cut off from opportunity. When a crisis comes, there's no one knocking on doors. There's no one reaching out. And you become, you're anxious, even on a day-to-day basis, you're more anxious, you're more vulnerable, you're more alienated, you don't feel a sense of agency. I think so many people in our societies feel no sense of agency because they're just, the society, they're, they're vulnerable and they have nothing they can do about it. But if you have a strong social capital, you always feel that you have something you can do about it. Yeah. I think a lot of people have a sense that our neighborhoods have gotten worse over the time, especially in terms of the social capital. I think it's probably true that over the past 60, 70 years, the amount of physical capital, the wealth, the material things, even in poor neighborhoods that we have now is greater than it was in the past. And yet perhaps that social capital has diminished. Is that right? That's definitely right, Matt. Uh, I mean, I, I start off with the premise that we have had decades, a couple of generations, 60 years of decline in our social capital and our social well-being as a society. There are loads of books. I mean, the most prominent written by Robert Bob Putnam and um, Bowling Alone and his other books. And his data will say 1964 was the peak of our of the strength of our neighborhoods, our, our associational life, our institutions. And it's basically been downhill ever since. It's not straight downhill. Sometimes it plateaus and it goes downhill and so on and so forth. But basically, we have gone what he called a we society to an I society. And the challenge is a lot of people lament this. A lot of people write great books about about this problem, try to diagnose it. We struggle to come up with answers, solutions. So in my research, I've tried really hard to start start my work with the problem, not end my work with the problem, but to look for solutions, look at people doing things, look at organizations doing things, and try to think really hard, what does it entail for us to reverse this dynamic so we all feel like I feel in my neighborhood, I feel I'm in a social, I live in a social support system or a network of people. I know who's behind the doors in my neighborhood. I know I can knock on if I need help and so on and so forth. I feel We need to think of strategies for us all to feel we live in joyful, supportive, even neighborhoods of possibility is what I would call them. I'm glad you mentioned that sort of tension between the individualism and community groups, collectives, the the I society versus the we society. I consider myself a classical liberal. I don't know whether that applies to you or not, but a lot (laughs) of people would think that my sort of worldview is then part of the problem with this individualistic sort of uh, sort of worldview. So what do you think? Is is classical liberalism a problem in our societies? How does this go into that the I versus the we? Well, I am also a classical liberal. Uh, we could have long debates about how do we define those terms and what do we mean by those terms and so on and so forth. But I would consider myself a classical liberal. I like to think of myself also as a Burkean a very much a Burkean who believes in the importance of institutions, a big fan of uh, de Tocqueville, 
and uh, scholars like that. Uh, but I would say one of the premises of like the people who designed the American Constitution and people who believe in classical liberalism is they assume that they are that they have a healthy society and they assume that the strength of classical liberalism, the strength of, of basically government and institutions in society and government all depends upon I'm not sure the best term is virtue, but let's say a virtuous, a virtuous individuals, virtuous society. And for the most part, when people think about uh, why, why have our, why have our, why have our institutions decayed? Why is there more mistrust in classical liberalism? Or why is there more, uh, a lot of distrust in the freedom of speech and, and, and government and other, uh, other bodies? Their general reaction is, we need to strengthen education. We need to find ways to teach people the importance of this. I think my argument is quite different. I think my argument is that if we grow up and live in places that are thriving with an abundance of institutions, we will day in and day out. This is what Tocqueville described in, uh, when he wrote Democracy in America. He will, we, will, we will be living in networks with people that we basically live with. And we have to work with them. We have to compromise with them. We have to negotiate with them. We have to recognize their needs. And it just creates a completely different dynamic. And I strongly believe that classical liberalism will only be as as strong a force in our society. And we can only be classical liberal societies if citizens are all embedded in lots and lots of institutions that are, in, in essence, we are shaping the institutions. The institutions are shaping us. They're forming us. They're uh, training us simply by day in, day out experience and what we're doing with other people to prepare us to live in a free society. I mean, this is this is so important. I think this concept is not well understood. We simply feel we have certain laws. We, cer- we have certain education or certain policies, and we can achieve that. I believe we have to be formed for that. And the formation must take place in lots and lots of, um, of, 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 of Burke calls them little platoons. Um, I think a better description is an abundance of local institutions that you partake in, contribute to, shape you, and basically teach you what it means to be a free citizen in a free society. And uh, I, I don't think this, this role is quite well understood by a lot of people today. Absolutely. I think that's great. So in your view, are these sort of the civic institutions, the local organizations that you mentioned, are those inherent in a classical liberal worldview, or are they sort of a separate thing that that complements classical liberalism well? I I think for people historically who wrote about it, I think they assumed, I mean, these are pre-political. So by being pre-political, they are in existence. So I, I, they're complementary in terms of they're, they're achieving different things. So it's, you're like talking about apples and oranges, but I think it's really hard to be a classical liberal society without people basically uh, being formed. I mean, I, I'll just, l- let me give a few examples. Uh, we treasure our constitutions. We treasure our institutions our constitution, our, um, our, the different ways our government works, the different ways our society works. 
I can take the same documents and the same formal organizations and I can transplant them. I work on fragile states. The countries I work on all over the world, some of them have great constitutions and they have the same bodies of um, government organizations that we have. And yet they are corrupt. They have trouble holding free elections. Uh, They have political instability. It's not the formal pieces of paper. It's not the formal laws um, that help us be free citizens. It's the training, the upbringing, the formation that comes about through lots and lots of local institutions, our ability to participate in them. I mean, I mean, marriage is one, family and marriage, but we're also talking about religion. We're talking about civic institutions. We're talking about involvement with school. We're talking about simply all the networks of people that you experience on a day-to-day basis in a, in a strong neighborhood in which people are doing things with each other. It's the kids' groups. It's the after-school activities. It's the parent associations. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking uh, during COVID, for example, we, we, didn't have, we didn't hide in our home. We put benches in front of our house. We looked for opportunities to help each other. We formed WhatsApp groups to connect with each other. We did lots and lots of little things because we live in a web of institutions meant to support each other. When you live like that day in and day out, normal time or crisis, you are being molded, shaped to be generous, to compromise, to think of the greater whole. And I think those things are all extremely important to have a classical liberal uh, society. So I think some people would hear that and say, these all seem like great things. Let's get the government involved and pass the laws, regulations, introduce the government programs that will create these things. Is that something that you think could be effective? I mean, government for sure is important. I don't think it's the answer to what we're talking about is social social dynamics. I mean, certain education, civic education in school, well, that could be a government policy. If you think national service is important, that could be a government policy. But for the most part, we're talking about non-formal or non-government institutions. We're talking about norms. We're talking about things that occur day in and day out between people. In my neighborhood, I mean, I, I can walk down the street and I feel a sense of security simply because I know the people and I, can, I speak to the people. And if there's something we worry about, you immediately want to get involved. I'm on the board of a local organization. There's lots of little things we do to support each other. These are not things of government. And I would even argue that we have this problem of skyrocketing costs to address so many problems. Think of the social problems we have in our societies. We have deaths of despair. That's uh, from drug overdose, suicide, uh, alcohol, too much alcohol. We have depression. We have mental illness. We have um, problems of loneliness, isolation. We have problems, a lot of problems involving children, uh, problems of safety, security. I mean, all of these problems lie downstream from something upstream in how our society operates. The more the problems exist downstream, the more the government must do to try to fix the problem. And but the but the challenge is. They're 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 like after a war. I my job is conflict prevention. My job is to prevent a country from going to war, from preventing violence 
if it already got to the war, I failed. And when government is, I mean, I'm, I, I understand the need. People are homeless. People are poor. People, uh, children grow up in tragic situations. There's clearly a need for government to do something, except it's the wrong formula. Uh, they're going after the war has occurred to try to help people in need. What they should be doing is thinking upstream, what is the role that the government has to play in terms of nurturing the kind of society I discuss? And I could explain more some of the things government can do. But for the most part, we want to think of preventing the war, preventing the crises, preventing the social problems, not just addressing them, especially in a siloed fashion. It's very expensive and it tends to just be one off and doesn't actually fix anything. And the data on the growth of these social problems over decades will attest to what I'm talking about. Yeah, this brings to mind a story that I read about in Ottawa recently. Are you familiar with the idea of a walking school bus? Is that a school bus that people walk? Uh, people uh, explain what it means. Yeah, I yeah. think I know, but explain what it means. Yeah. Go ahead, Matt. So it's for kids who live too close to a school to be bused to school, but are not old enough yet to necessarily walk to school on their own. And they run these walking groups where a couple of adults will start, and they have a route, of course, and they've advertised got it, this, got spoken it. to the parents. And it's the, a school bus without a bus, exactly right. And they walk together. <laughs> and so for kids who are like a little too young to go on themselves, they have some adult oversight. And to me, this is like a great idea of some of these these community institutions, right? The kids get to meet each other. The parents get to know the kids and meet them and things like that. And the problem when I read about this was that it was a government program. And so the city of Ottawa, the school board, was paying two adults every day. One goes to the front, one goes to the back of the walking school bus. They were paying these adults to show, you know, guide these kids to school. And then, of course, as you know, so many government institutions are, the school board was under a funding pressure, and they decided they had to cut that program. And they had a, a lot of interviews with parents in the article I read about how disappointed they were, how important and valuable they thought this was. And to me, this seemed like a great example of why we shouldn't rely on government for those sorts of things, right? The idea. Of I mean, the question is, bus. why couldn't a few parents step up and organize it? I mean, clearly, what we have is a catch-22, as we would say, a chicken and egg problem. We have a great need for this social institutions and like a volunteerism and people thinking about each other and organizing society. And yet, when we don't have it, who initiates? Who changes it? I mean, we used to be natural. In my neighborhood, kids, we have a community school, and I think community schools are so important. They incubate relationships. They have, a, I mean, two-thirds, three-quarters of my kids' uh, classmates live in my neighborhood. They can walk to their neighborhood, neighbors. They can spend time in each other's homes. It's great, but the school is not walking distance away. We have carpools, incredibly organized. The thing, you don't want to be on the street at 8.30 in the morning because it's a traffic jam in a suburban neighborhood because there's dozens of cars going to a couple of these community schools. So we have dozens of cars, but it's completely organized by the parents, uh, groups of, I don't know, two families, three families. And so uh, that's what we really need. And, and that, and that, and that volunteerism, and that in, intentional effort to solve problems as a society is something that used to be the norm and is too often not the norm. And that, that leads to simply a greater and greater need for government. And 
it's it's how do you how do you change that dynamic? I think that's one of the biggest questions we face. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was reading your book, and I was sort of thinking of this this walking school bus example in my mind. And of course, there's not going to be one definition of a good neighborhood versus a bad neighborhood. But I don't know what happened with the places that had this school bus program that was then cut. But I think perhaps you can make an argument that in a place where the parents did get together and say, we're going to take charge of this, we're going to make sure this stays in place on our own and organize together, that could be a good neighborhood. And a neighborhood where the parents don't yes, have those relationships, yes, yes, not so yes. good. Yes, I would say something like that. I mean, again, there's a lot of factors. How far are they walking? How old are the kids? But in general, I think what we the role of government, I think, is to to the extent that it's possible, should be thinking how do we nurture a society where people feel they have agency and feel they have a stake in the well-being of their neighborhoods and the people around them such that they are in, they literally initiate volunteer I'm thinking I live on I live on a, a relatively short street two blocks I'm at 910 there's this incredible woman at 903 she's pretty quiet doesn't talk a lot when you see her. And yet I see her every week walking throughout my neighborhood, knocking on the doors of people who live alone. I mean, it happens to be her mother lives a few blocks from her and lives alone. So I don't know if that was the starting point, but I know the house next to me, there's a woman who lives alone and she goes and spends a half an hour. I don't know how many times a week and she's going up and down the neighborhood and I see her every couple of days. And so what is it that that encouraged her to have this desire, this sense of responsibility for other people. And I'm I'm sure she's getting a lot out of it. I'm sure she's enjoying it. I'm sure she feels that she's helping people. But to the extent that all of us have our first immediate thought is not about how do I save time? How do I focus on myself? But think, yes, I have my career. Yes, I have my family. But what else can I be doing in my life to contribute to my neighborhood? I mean, this is this used to be the norm. It's not really the norm today. And and that, to me, is one of the challenges we face. That's a great example. As we go into the second half of our conversation, I want to talk a little bit about some of the the success stories that you've identified in your book and and possible solutions. Before we get to that, you've mentioned your work on fragile states a couple times, and some listeners who may have seen your bio may be sort of curious. You've got a lot of work on international affairs, international projects, and all these sorts of things. And now you're doing this very local project of talking about, you know, neighborhoods very locally (laughs) in America. So tell us a little bit about how you came to this project. I live just north of Washington, D.C., and many people in Washington know me as the fragile, at least up to now, knew me as the fragile states person uh, because I, uh, I've i done work for the World Bank, State Department, all these organizations. I've written a lot. I've published books. I co-manage a nonprofit. Everybody would know me and then uh, for, for, that, for that topic, for my work. And then around 2015... 2016, 2017, you can think about what's going on in American politics. And people started asking me, are we a fragile state? Are we going to have the same problems as your countries? Uh, What should we do about it? They were worried about uh, politicians. They worry about mistrust. They worry about polarization. And I had just come back from Sri Lanka or from, from Nigeria. And I'm thinking, this cannot be the same situation. This is not like Nigeria. But 
people are asking this question. It's a very important question. So I literally spent several years researching, reading loads and loads of books. I mean, I had so many books at the end of this. I had to buy a new bookcase. My wife did not want it in the living room, but I had no place else to put it. I traveled around the country, spoke to a lot of people, spoke to people in think tanks, spoke to people working on the front line. I think people working on the front line are always uh, undervalued in terms of what they see and they understand. And my conclusion was, we don't have the same kind of problems that my fragile, the fragile states I work on have. Those countries, they tend to be very strong at the local level. They have strong uh, community. Uh, what they don't have is strong national institutions, strong economy. They don't have cohesion, strong, what we call, what we call before bridging social capital across parts of society. And therefore, they have a very hard time getting to political stability. In the United States, we have a lot of that. What we, what we lack is there's been this great thinning of our interpersonal relationships, our local institutions. And my, what I discovered in all this research was that, for me, relationships are the most important thing to looking at a country. They will determine how a country is doing, where it's going in the future. And in the United States, in Canada, and other developed countries, I believe the great risk we have is not what's happening nationally, but what it's happening locally, particularly in some neighborhoods, some parts of countries, and I mean the extent. We're talking of tens and tens of millions of people in my country. And so I believe if we're trying to think about how to address all these problems, we got to start with the local, the interpersonal, the local institutions, and that is feeding into everything else that led people to ask those questions. It's really interesting you mentioned that some of the uh, countries that have very weak national or yeah, the national or regional level institutions then have weak local institutions, whereas in Canada and the U.S. we sort of have the opposite problem. Is there a country you've been aware of in your studies that does well on both fronts, or is this sort of a one or the other kind of situation? Well, I, if you go back 60 years, and we went back to the We Society, the United States did very well on both. I think... Uh, Historically, um, until the 60s, I mean, there, were, there, there was um, there are waves of social change that uh, that have challenged us. But this up until the 1960s, for at least half a century, 60, 70 years, we had very, very strong local social dynamics and we had strong national dynamics. And so I think um that would be a good example. If you ask me today, I think probably the countries that are doing best on both levels. I mean, if you look at Israel, for example, for all of its challenges um, in terms of its neighbors, um, very strong society, very strong outpouring of support whenever there's a crisis. And um, government is not great, but it does work at a pretty high level. I think if you're looking at, at like Europe, you're going to look at countries that have high levels of decentralization, countries that are very much in terms of thick social institutions and thick bonds uh, locally. I mean, a place like the Netherlands, I mean, we would have to look at the data and do some sort of cross-country comparison. But my experience in places like the Netherlands, they tend to have uh, be a very decentralized country. They tend to have strong social bonds at multiple levels. 
I think the English speaking countries are particularly challenged because they're so individualistic that they're, and also in many cases, they're so spread out. Think of Canada and the United States. Just the physical landscape will always challenge our social cohesion. We almost have to intentionally compensate in how we think about the role of government and the role of institutions to compensate for how much our countries drive us apart. You can always, in in America, you can always go and be a hermit someplace and no one have any idea where you are. And I think a lot of people, too many people, have thought that they're living like hermit-like lives. They're in their houses and they don't have to know anybody. And uh, the physical landscape certainly has some role to play in our countries. So I do think we can find examples and we can certainly look to the past to find a good example that was ourselves, actually. Great, thanks. I think that does a really good job of describing the problem as you see it, as you point out in your excellent book. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the success stories and the possible solutions that you found through your work. The Curious Task is a podcast by the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to CuriousTask at liberalstudies.ca. Special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Yakov Mihailovich, Peter Jaworski, and Ben Hobbs. Remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Curious Task. I'm talking today to Seth Kaplan about his book, Fragile Neighborhoods. In the first half of our conversation, we talked about the problems that are facing neighborhoods, especially in the U.S., but I think a lot of these ideas and thoughts and concepts relate to us here in Canada, too. Now, I want to take a bit of a more cheerful approach and talk about some of the things that could solve the problems that Seth has identified. We're going to start off, you know, conveniently for me, Seth, I'm a big Detroit Lions fan, which has meant many years of suffering. But this year, it's looking really good for us. The first example you talk about someone in a community working to make positive change comes from Detroit. Can you tell us a little bit about that case? So I looked at uh, Chris Lambert and an organization called Life Remodeled. And and just to give some background, I looked at the data on the success of neighborhoods. You asked me before, I talked about the abundance of institutions. There were certainly certain types of institutions that played a more more important role than others. Uh, But one one was um, this sort of collective we would use the term collective efficacy. I don't want to use a technical term, but some sort of collective. I mean, you've had Eleanor Ostrom scholars on this. So think of uh, Eleanor Ostrom's thinking in terms of some sort of collective that, that we have some social good that we're trying to achieve. And then and then I chose, I looked around for organizations that were trying to build up a sense of community and abundance of institutions in a neighborhood. And I zeroed in on Chris Lambert, Lambert and he, he basically... Uh, did a lot of good work in different parts of Detroit, uh, cleaning up streets, uh, fixing up homes. And Detroit is a very difficult place to work in because the population is down two thirds. If you walk around the landscape in Detroit, it's almost devastating. It's like a post-conflict scenario. And you see uh, neighborhoods that don't exist anymore. You see houses that have collapsed. It's really incredible. And then you get to this Chris Lambert who chose a particular neighborhood that wants to start a neighborhood hub. It looks all very promising. It looks great for the neighborhood. And then he presents it to people and they, they're they angry at him. They rage at him. 
And they're asking him, who are you outsider, especially a white guy to come into our black neighborhood and do this? And they are they're fearful that he's gentrifying the place and they're going to lose their homes. They're fearful he's going to take over the neighborhood. And he basically he had a good idea, but he had to learn the hard lesson that if we want to do something in any neighborhood, that even could be our own, our own neighborhoods, we have to build trust with others. And building trust is not something that just happened. So he had to learn incrementally what it means to build trust. And eventually he came up with a formula, um, or I came up with a formula from, from researching what he did. And it was about ba- breaking bread. It was about talking to people. It was about going on the streets and meeting people. It was about identifying key people in the neighborhood who were very important. Uh, you might call them elder states people. None of them were older, but they were they were senior people. It was about identifying people who he could hire. So he wasn't it wasn't an organization staffed by outsiders. It became an organization. He's not a large organization staffed by insiders. So imagine that he's an organization with local people, and now he has these local advisors, and he spent a lot of time learning what people want, and he refocuses his energy, um, people's perception of him will change. And he formalizes the advisors and the relationships into some sort of advisory body, a formal advisory body, and he has one of students, and he's one of these um, elder states people. And this whole process not only teaches him about how do you actually build deeper relationships, not relationships where I'm just doing things for you, but relationships where wherever we're coming from, we're actually working together on an even uh, on a, on an even basis. We're cooperating with each other. Yes, I'm trying to do good in this neighborhood, but you're also helping me in terms of whatever I'm doing, and you have a stake in the outcome. And this this was a learning curve. The end result was he has this hub in this former middle school. He has 39 organizations in there. They've refurbished the school. So there's like a library in there. There's activities rooms. There's an arcade in there. And there's loads of these new institutions and there's new networks. And there's all these different ways that people can now work with each other, trust each other, cooperate with each other to better their neighborhood. And so this whole journey leads to a great result. And we can learn a lot from that, which I try to draw out. Wonderful. Great. I think it's it's a great story. Again, I spent a lot of my life in Windsor, Ontario. So just across the border from Detroit, my dad actually worked in downtown Detroit for 10 years. Um, and so I've seen uh, firsthand a lot of the problems they have there. But everybody tells me things are improving. I would say one thing that surprised me, if you talk about Toronto and Windsor, I assume for our Canadian uh, friends on this call, I somehow assumed that the United States was south of Canada. But when I went to the harbor in Detroit and I looked across the harbor and I was looking south from north, there was Canada. And I did not realize, putting Alaska aside, I did not realize that in the continental, the 48 states, that I could actually be in the U.S. and be north of Canada. So I wonder how many people listening to this actually know that that can occur. I'm going to guess that probably not a lot. Again, one of the things that uh, Windsorites, we you know, sort of think of ourselves as being ignored and marginalized and, and by the rest of uh, Canada, <laughs> especially Toronto. Nobody from Toronto would go to Windsor. And so you know, people from Windsor or have ties to Windsor may know that trivia fact. I suspect a lot of people not from that area would not know that. 
Maybe that'll come up in some sort of like pub trivia night. Where in Canada can you look north to the U.S. that's not looking at Alaska? <laughs> the answer is my hometown of Windsor. I look forward to joining that pub night sometime. Thank you. Be great. You also talk about schools, and I'm a, you know very interested in this topic right now. I know you have uh, kids in school. We have just uh, started the process this year of starting to think about what school our eldest child was going to attend and, and made that decision. But of course, in poor neighborhoods that aren't working well, the schooling can be a big issue. And you talk about some examples of what's going on in, in the state of Kentucky and in, in some neighborhoods on this. Can you, can you talk more about how schools uh, relate to this? So again, I look at five organizations and five places. So Detroit is a great example of an urban location. I chose also Appalachia, Eastern Kentucky. Great example. I, I mean, I will tell you in all my travels, to in this research, uh, Eastern Kentucky, incredible, um, beautiful. Uh, you have lots of hills. Of course, you eventually get to mountains. And when you're there, I was there in the fall, and it's it's very foggy, and literally you're going up and down, green environment with thick fog, and it's it's somehow almost mystical. Actually, it's it's a incredible sight. I I don't think anyone considers Eastern Kentucky as a tourist destination. But I will tell you, it was quite just the beauty of the landscape was um, it, it was it stands in my head even now. So I, I looked at an organization that's there supporting schools in Eastern Kentucky. And the challenge that we think of um, places with enormous problems, we typically think of urban neighborhoods. And there's many rural areas I, I'm sure there's problems in the United States in, in reservations or in Canada it would be First Nations homelands that might have also not very good uh, social indicators. Eastern Kentucky has awful numbers, uh, population decline, broken families. I think there was one county in which a quarter of the students do not know where they're sleeping night to night because of family breakdown, because of drug overdose, because of people getting into jail. And this area is 98% or something like that white. So it's not what you typically think of as, uh, as, a, as, a, as a bad neighborhood. And this organization uh, very, um, very creatively look, looks all over, looked and looks all over um, the United States for models that it can import. It works through schools. Schools are extremely important if you're in areas of social breakdown. In this area in rural Kentucky, the count the government is very limited. It basically has a, a, an office or a couple of offices in the county seat, the county capital, and there's the schools. And then there's some churches. There's very little philanthropy. So the schools are among the only entities that can reach and help people. And this organization uh, works what they call cradle to career try to reach Lily into homes. I mean, they're thinking every learning environment, the most important learning environment is the home. So they're helping pregnant uh, mothers. They're helping households. Some of these people, I went into their homes, they live in trailers down what, what, what they call hollows, like alleyways down in, in among these hills. And they literally have partners that go into homes and they're working with schools. And one of their key elements, which I think, I found very unique is they don't believe people can succeed unless they feel good about who they are and where they come from. And in, um, in many cases, 
the places that are doing the least good um, are typically the culture may be a little different than the mainstream. They might be marginalized. I can't say it's like Windsor. It's quite different, even though you use the word marginalized. But I mean, the, the people feel marginalized. They feel looked down upon. And so one of their key um, issues was besides thinking very much about about learning ecosystem, social ecosystem, about working in schools, in families, in local institutions, anything to improve uh, the society's ability to educate and help children succeed. They also looked at what can we learn from our local context to make people feel good about themselves so they celebrate the arts and the culture and they find opportunities for people to basically celebrate who they are and at the same time, raise expectations and raise social support around them so they have all the elements. I mean, again, we need to understand that success as individuals and success as places, it's not always hardware. Software matters. Software being relationships, software being expectations, software being how we feel about ourselves and our place. And the more we get the software right, the less the hardware where we tend to spend a lot of money actually will matter. I think this is so true. And I think that this example shows that to be uh, the correct approach. That's great. I mean, I will say, although people in Windsor often feel ignored by the the rest of Canada, we are immensely proud of our local pizza, which almost nobody knows about, but uh, it's starting <laughs> to get some awareness. There's now a Windsor pizza place in, in Toronto, and uh, those of us who are expats around uh, what's, Canada. What's special? I hate to ask, but what's yeah. special about your pizza, Matt? Um, I mean, it is a sort of medium crust. It is, it's got a special local cheese that is, you know, as different. A uh, couple of distinguishing features, shredded pepperoni rather than circles of pepperoni and canned mushrooms and everybody sort of you know turns up their nose if they don't know about the canned mushrooms uh but on pizza works very well so if you find yourself in windsor uh, i'm a big fan of vegetables on my pizza but i i actually have never asked do they come from a can (laughs) usually (laughs) usually they don't but in this case they do Great. I want to touch on something on the school front that I don't think was really part of this example in your book, but it's the issue of school choice. School choice is something as a parent that I've become very interested in lately. Do you think that there's a role for something like school choice in making our neighborhoods better? I think I think there's two dimensions to this. I'm a big believer in community schools because I think local schools are extremely important to nurturing relationships. On the other hand, I think school competition, competition between schools is hugely important. Uh, there are many ways to get competition. School choice is clearly the most obvious. Theoretically, public schools could be designed that there was local accountability, extensive parent involvement, and competition between schools. And uh, so I, I, I think... School choice is important, but I would also be thinking about other elements. I have an example about an organization based in Atlanta, and so they purpose-built communities. And one of the elements that they do when they work on neighborhoods is they want local people or people who are working on improving a neighborhood, they basically want them to govern or have a large role in governing the school. They prefer the school to be what we call in the United States a charter school. So a charter school could be a, there could be, there could be, it could be part of competition. Um, There could be many elements. People could certainly 
have multiple choices. For me, what one thing that makes my neighborhood school successful is there's multiple choices. And so therefore, I, I'm a big believer. But I think equally important is that there's strong ties to a place. And I think it's very important that local people have influence and have some stake in the success. And um, there needs to be some sort of virtuous cycle between uh, families, parents, place, and schools, uh, combined with competition in which school choice could play a very large role. So hopefully I've answered your question. No, I think that's great. I mean, I, I, in some ways, we have some level of, of choice and competition within the public system here in Ontario because we do have uh, Catholic schools and French schools that fall within in the public system. And actually, one of the decisions we made with our daughter when she was starting uh, school was to send her to a school with French immersion. So it's a school for English-speaking students, but it f- focuses on teaching them French, which in Ottawa is, is a useful thing. So although there's not as much choice and competition as I would like in our system here, we do have some elements of that. I'm, I'm grateful that we have that. I want to jump ahead to uh, another part, which I think has a special relevance. You talk about housing in the uh, in, in the book and, and affordable housing not being enough. As you may know, here in Canada, almost all of our cities are really undergoing a bit of a crisis when it comes to affordable housing. And there's a lot of a discussion about what we can do to, to solve this. What role does affordable housing and other things relating to ha- uh, housing and habitats play in strong neighborhoods? First, I mean, it's clear, and there's a lot of evidence, and this is not my field especially, there's clearly a lot of evidence that we have regulated ourselves into the housing crisis. And uh, whether because of zoning or uh, planning um, or environmental rules, and I'm sure they all have a good purpose, and I'm sure change is controversial, and not everybody will agree with it. But if we have, uh, in Canada's case, you have loads of immigrants and you have no new housing, and that seems to be a clear contradiction. And um, so, I, I mean, I, so that would be one angle. In terms of what I, my research focuses on, my research focuses on um, it's extremely important that we do not build class-based neighborhoods. I don't think this is nearly a, a, as big of a problem in Canada as in the United States. In the United States, uh, there are neighborhoods that we would call distressed because there's such a high level of poverty. And then we typically, if you're building housing for low-income people, we just build more low-income housing in those neighborhoods. And actually, those organizations that are doing that, they may be meeting their targets, but they'd be making the neighborhoods worse off and making the people that they put in the housing less likely to to thrive. And so I think it's really important, first, we focus on the quality as well as the quantity, but that we need to have mixed-income neighborhoods. We need very much to think of models where people are cross-class and, I mean, diversity. We talk about diversity, but we don't often talk about class diversity. We don't often talk about political diversity. So we want diversity on many levels so that neighborhoods thrive and they're not excluding people by keeping people out of neighborhoods or they're not congregating. And I actually believe that housing departments Focusing on units is really not is not actually the way to go. I really wish our governments were not structured around functions. I wish our governments were structured around places. And those functions were advisors or supporters. So you had place-based teams. Imagine that, for example, in Windsor or in Toronto or in Ottawa, instead of a, one government with all these departments for each for each service, 
that the model wasn't about service and doing more units. The model was how do we divide into, into clearly demarcated territories, divide our cities, and that we had teams around those neighborhoods. And one element would be more housing, and one element would be, uh, would be uh, better streets and more walkability, and one element would be uh, more, more places to meet and more commercial life and more better schools and more competition with schools. And all of these things should be thought of as a, a, the need to, to nurture virtuous cycles. And, uh, but going back to your first question, clearly um, developed countries need, especially UK, Canada, United States, Australia, New Zealand, need a lot more housing and anything we can do to make housing um, greater quantity. And I would also say mixed income is very important. It's interesting you mentioned both Toronto and Ottawa in that example, because both those cities, about 20 to 25 years ago now, uh, had a forced merger by the province where many of the smaller cities that were outlying, both the you know core cities of Toronto and Ottawa, were forced in, made into you know, larger cities. And this is a topic for another day, but the, con- the results of that have generally not been great. But I, I love your point. They probably weakened the cohesion of those neighborhoods. I mean, I mean, again, there's a tension. The city wants to grow. Um, but by doing that, they clearly are taking away something that was special about those places. Absolutely. I was going to say, I love your point about the the problems with affordable housing in terms of if we, because I think you're right, we don't have the as much of the problems that you have in the U.S. and in Canada uh, in terms of class-based neighborhoods. But I worry that if our solution to the affordability uh, crisis is to have government build a bunch of affordable housing places in one area, it becomes that. And so I'd much rather see a solution that brings down housing, the cost of housing across the city, across all neighborhoods, rather than sort of ghettoizing any sort of groups. I mean, density. Density is, um, I mean, you could call me um, like a closet new urbanist. I'm a fan of new urbanism. I don't think it has a complete vision because they don't think sufficiently about the social. They think very about the physical. But this idea that we need to have greater density and multifunctional in terms of uh, the zoning, allowing all sorts of functions to take place in the same space that you have housing. I think all of that is certainly the right direction. And it's it's likely the only way to deal with the housing crisis in a healthy manner. But, but that certainly involves changing a lot of rules and possibly getting some people angry in the short term to achieve that. Absolutely. I consider myself a market urbanist, and we've got several episodes of the podcast, as some listeners will recall. And if you don't, go check them out. People like Alain Berteau, Brian Kaplan, and Sandy Aketa, and Nolan Gray talking about sort of combining market and urban principles. Seth, our time is winding down, but there are a couple of things I want to get to before we wrap up. And one is something that you talk about early on in your book, which is the idea of mutual aid. I found out about mutual aid about 10, 15 years ago, found it fascinating, but I think a lot of people do not know about it. Can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by the idea of a mutual aid society? So mutual aid is this idea that we formal, again, it could be informal, it could be formal. And the in the more well-known cases, it's about formalizing um, a group of people coming together and formalizing um, their association. I mean, the most common form that I see that if I travel the world is some sort of savings associations. They're very common in Africa. Uh, I don't know, 25 families come together. They all agree to input a certain amount of money every month, and every month they vote on one person 
who has who gets a loan from the group basically, or get, actually it might be that they get the money out. And um, but it's basically twenty five families or thirty five families, whatever it might be, that come together small numbers. You can also think of mutual aid as being some sort of like a little bit like small banks could be. They're basically very place based. They could be mutual aid, but on a day to day basis, I mean, mutual aid is. If you're in a good neighborhood, what's mutual aid? Mutual aid is that we're busy today. You, my neighbor, could you look after my kids? And then next week you're away and I will take your boxes into my house. Um, or I'm, or, or, I mean, we have this constantly in my neighborhood with people doing things for each other. There's, there's, there's uh, a group. There's actually some, some, I don't even know if it's formalized. It might be a formal nonprofit. It might just be in a few people volunteering their basements there's like a loan, some sort of association where if you have used clothes, used toys, used furniture, you basically donate it to this organization. And anyone in the neighborhood who has a need can go and take the item. Basically, you're basically donating it to somebody else without ever knowing that person. That's the type of mutual aid association. Um, you, but you can just think of any group of people, and it could be small, it could grow. Again, there's some of these. Uh, mutual aid societies that have grown to be, I think, even tens of thousands of members. But for me, on the on a day to day basis, the most important thing about this is that there are networks of people who they may not be friends. There might be a few friends you start, but grow into networks of people who are connected with each other, who simply by their habit and what they do, they're supporting each other. And again, the most important thing in the neighborhood are not your friends are the relationships that you trust and that you are able to go to or they're able to go to you and you're able to help them if they have some need. I mean, you're not going to pay for their their $25,000 hospital bill, but you may be helping them in lots of small ways and all those small things add up to quite a lot over time. Yeah, I think that's that's really important. The idea that uh, that we have these you talk about them in the book is middle middle ring relationships. These people who are middle not ring close relationship, friends. yes, yeah. And uh, and one thing that I think that can have the potential to undermine uh, these sorts of relationships is the sort of the idea that we live in this very polarized society right now, where other people's political views uh, mean a lot, and you need to know what they are, and you need to not be friends with the person who has the the wrong views and. This is something that has troubled me a lot over the past couple of years. But you have an interesting example near the end of your book that I'd never heard of. What do you call it? the great quieting of the 1890s? <laughs> and I would love for you to talk briefly about that. So first, if I may just um, say that if you I strongly think that neighborhoods will be better if we put politics aside and we put our focus on the neighborhood. So I intentionally have no sign on my front yard. I have no bumper sticker on my car. I certainly believe national elections matter. I certainly believe that advocating for changes in policy matter. But I would ask people uh, to think what would happen if your day-to-day life involved no politics and your relationships locally was about making the place better and not about politics. So in terms of the great quieting, so the great quieting, that's a I believe that's a quote. I'm not sure if it's from the, a book or from somebody that was quoted in a book, but it was certainly from a book about the late 19th century. So if you look at American history, uh, basically, we've had two great waves of change. 
and um, and um, in terms of social dynamics. In the late 19th century, uh, there was immigration, there was urbanization, and there was um, urbanization and all the technology industrialization. And enormous things were going on, and there was a great need for new new initiatives to make places better because there was a lot more people in cities with a lot different technologies. And here we were in the years after the Civil War. The Civil War in the United States, 1861, 1865, and then the years after that was, of course, terribly polarizing. Think about how many hundreds of thousands of people and their families. I mean, people died, people were injured. And after that, there were terrible fights over reconstruction and other issues at the national level. And then somehow in the 1880s and 1890s, as the war became more distant and all the need to address all of these great changes in society, it led to a focus uh, of moving everyone's focus from national politics to basically making the local better. And that's what we call the great quieting was that politics, people became less engaged, people became uh, less polarized. And the thing was, people didn't have less energy. People didn't have less desire to make the country better. What they had was a different focus. Their focus was local. It was practical. It might have been practical politics. It might have been starting new organizations. It might be advocating for changes at the city or state level. But it was a great quality in the in the in the effect that people stopped arguing so viciously and so violently over the national, and they got to work on practical institution and policy changes locally. And I would argue that what we need is a similar shift in focus because we have great social poverty, social breakdown. We need to rebuild our social fabric, and that means that we. All of us have to think of our patriotism and our desire to to do good and help people and country. We need to do it locally. We we need to stop thinking answers are in politics, answers are in distant policies, answers are in checks to some far off organization. We need to roll up our sleeves, find organizations of people locally and work uh, to achieve real, real improvements for real people in real places. That's a great call to action. I love the idea that uh, that although we live in this polarized age, all may not be lost and we can find our way out yet. We are almost at the end of our time today, Seth. But before we wrap up, I just want to ask you, I mean, it's such an interesting book. You talk about the problems, but there's lots of sort of practical solutions, both on bigger scales, uh, the project in Detroit and others that you talk about, but also smaller practical tips. And I'd, I'd love if you could leave us with, if you were to speak to our listeners and give them one or two bits of advice that they might be able to use in their life if they want to help make their neighborhood stronger. What do you think people can do? Got it. So I have uh, one chapter on lessons for organizations, and I have a chapter on what individuals can do. So clearly, I think if we spend more focus on family, more focus on place, uh, we think of social engagement as not a social media, not in a check, but working with neighbors to make places better. I think if we um, look to volunteer, we look for organizations to join. Uh, we look for ways to um, make our neighborhoods better places to celebrate. If we look for people 
or networks nearby that we can join or contribute to to make things better. I, I would ask everyone to um, be practical, be hyper-local. Again, think of not something you're going to solve with money, but something you might you might have to work on yourself to get to know people, work with people. It could be lots of volunteer. It could be joining the board. I'm a, a board of a local organization, and I contribute to several other organizations. If you're going to send money, don't send money far away. Send money local. Again, be practical. Be local. Be personal. Get out there and and find partners. Find partners or organizations that you can do things together. Seth Kaplan, I've enjoyed our conversation a lot today. Thanks so much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it so much. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Sabine Alchidak and Eric Sege. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Vaupenfjord. You should check out his music online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it, and listeners like yourself. I'm Matt Bufton. Thanks again for joining us on The Curious Task.